Oblate School of Theology is a Catholic graduate school that provides theological education for the Church's mission and ministry in the world. Inspired by the charism of the missionary Oblates of Mary Immaculate, Oblate School of Theology educates, forms, and renews men and women to preach the gospel to the most abandoned. OST prepares Catholic priests, deacons, seminarians, non-Catholic clergy, women religious, and lay ministers through the integration of pastoral experience and theological study. Visit ost.edu to learn more about program options. That's ost.edu. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with American Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. This week, we're talking about the Pope's comments on the police killing of George Floyd and the worldwide Black Lives Matter protests. After that, we'll update you on the arrest of one of the Italian brokers involved in the Vatican's London real estate scandal. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New York, Jerry. Good afternoon from uh, cloudy Rome, Colleen. (laughs) We've got sunny New York here today. How's the uh, reopening of Italy going? Well, uh, it's moving forward. There is this great joy over the weekend as people gathered in the piazzas and squares and uh, many people went to restaurants. But there's also this underlying trepidation. There's a feeling that the virus is under control, but there's also the fear that it could reactivate and we could get a second wave. Uh, and Pope Francis was was back to greeting folks in St. Peter's Square, right? Well, you had a couple of hundred people, two or three hundred people, not more, in the square for the second Sunday in, uh, in the row. And uh, Francis said, you know, it's great to see you back. And Italy seems to have come out of the acute phase of the pandemic. But he said, we've got to follow the rules and don't cry victory too soon. Speaking of those public gatherings in Rome, though, last week there was a protest in Rome and there were other protests across Europe in response to the killing of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis here in the U.S. These protests have not just been about the unjust killing of Mr. Floyd, but they've also been about larger systems of racism. And so, Jerry, I'm wondering, you know, you have the view from from Europe. uh, What issues are you hearing about in, in those protests in Europe? Well, the two protests, first of all, there was a protest about the racism in the United States. This was felt very strongly among many people in Europe. And then the second saying, well, it's not just uh, racism, isn't just in the United States, there's also racism in Europe. For example, in Belgium, Belgium, which had been in control of the, uh, the Congo, not so many decades back, mm-hmm. and uh, in the 20th century. And uh, the people there felt, we have got racism too still here. And uh, they cited the case of a young person who'd been killed uh, recently. In Britain, there was protests all over Britain because, uh, you know, Britain is a multi, multiracial, multicultural country. And especially in London, there was very big protests. And in Bristol, they threw the statue of mm-hmm. a 17th century slave trader into the River Avon. Uh, They pulled down the statue and threw it in. There's a strong feeling that racism has not been overcome in France, in Belgium, in Europe, and also in Italy, but also further afield in Australia too. 
And uh, so the what has happened in the United States has triggered, first of all, reaction very strong against what happened in the United States about the killing of uh, George Floyd and uh, the reaction of President Trump to this, to sending in the threat to send in the army. This, this was felt very strongly in Europe. And secondly, there was a saying, well, we also have to look at our home. We are very much conscious that we haven't got our house in order here. So what happens in the United States, you know, impacts here. And vice versa, of course, it creates a certain consciousness that uh, America has also got to correct itself. Right. Uh, you know, we were talking a lot about how um, Pope Francis has has called this time of coronavirus, of quarantine, a time for reflection and possible conversion. And I, I do wonder watching this, you know, how much uh, the fact that we all have time to reflect has kind of given people the space to reflect, especially on racism. And if this is maybe that moment of conversion that that Francis was talking about. Well, Francis has always said, as I mentioned in my in the last podcast, Francis always said, there's not just one pandemic. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he's saying there are other pandemics, poverty, and of course, racism. And I mean, his statement on the death of George Floyd couldn't have been clearer. He said, we cannot tolerate or turn a blind eye to racism and exclusion in any form, and yet claim to defend the sacredness of every human life. Right. We mentioned last week that we had expected Pope Francis to speak out on the death of George Floyd, and he he did so uh, on Wednesday, right after our show came out. So, like you said, he said, you you can't uh, cooperate with racism and call yourself a defender of life. Um, I wonder who who this message was targeted to. Well, it's to, first of all the, the, the Pope's message. He, he he spoke to my brothers and sisters in the United States. He didn't just say to my brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church in the United States. He was seventy million. No. It was to the broader audience. And he's, of course, well aware, as I wrote in my article, that there are people in the United States who say, you know, the biggest issue is abortion. And uh, we have to, that's, we defend life if we combat abortion. And Francis is saying, sorry, you have one part of the equation. There's a whole other part that you're missing. Mm-hmm. Now, this language that you used of abortion as being a preeminent issue uh, is language that's used often by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. And Francis actually personally called to bishops about the George Floyd case. One of them was Archbishop Jose Gomez of Los Angeles, who is president of the USCCB. Um, he also called Bishop Mark Seitz of El Paso, who recently visited the sites where protesters and police had clashed the night before. Um, Bishop Seitz knelt there with a Black Lives Matter sign. He prayed for eight minutes, which was the amount of time that uh, Derek Chauvin had knelt on George Floyd's neck. Um, so let's talk about these calls that, that the Pope gave to these bishops. Uh, what did you have to say to them? Well, you, you, we know we don't know exactly what went on in the call, but it's it's very clear. That, I mean, uh, Archbishop Gomez has said the Pope spoke to me, and he he's expressed support for what the bishops are doing. And uh, it, clearly, the Pope didn't choose those two by accident. Yeah, Gomez is the president of the bishops' conference. They had issued their statement. The seven heads of the different commissions had come out with a statement, and uh, Francis is saying, "Yeah, right on." Mm-hmm. Gomez's statement, we should say, specifically linked uh, the George Floyd case to racism and said, "You know, we do need to like overcome this evil in society." Um, he. 
He denounced the violence that had happened uh, in the protest between protesters and police. But uh, he did say, you know, this is this is a symptom of a larger problem and that's something that needs to be solved. And obviously, Bishop Seitz was very clear on that as well. Yes. And Francis, in his first in his programmatic document, The Joy of the Gospel, which he had written within four months of becoming Pope. He had it written by August. It was published in November. He makes very clear that the Catholic teaching on the defense of life is a much broader, is a much broader question, and it in, encompasses many things. And in his pontificate, he's gone out of the way to speak about the exclusion of people, about the immigrants, about the death penalty. And here he speaks explicitly about racism. And he feels very strongly about it. And I told you, I mentioned in the last podcast, how he, he was, he's a great admirer of Ma- Martin Luther King. And he has read his works, a lot of the speeches of Martin Luther King. And he has so referred to him several times, including, of course, in his speech to the Congress in September 2015. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah, I've been also uh, revisiting Evangelii Gaudium, The Joy of the Gospel, recently. Uh, there was one part that I, that someone pointed out to me, which was early on he says that violence is something that happens in societies as a result of injustices. And he says, you know, we we don't condone violence, but also it's it's bound to happen in a situation where there is such injustice. And so the solution to it is to solve the injustices, um, which I thought was just a really relevant message for this time. He's been a constant on in his position that we must carry our case forward in nonviolent ways. And uh, I think he's, this is what he's really appreciated in Martin Luther King, the nonviolent way with which he carried forward uh, the abolition of racism, the civil rights of the black people in the United States and such like. All right. So you can find our full reporting on Pope Francis's statement on George Floyd and his calls to Archbishop Gomez and Bishop Seitz at americamagazine.org. And I will link to that in the show notes. For our next story, uh, the Vatican's ongoing London real estate scandal was back in the news last week. Uh, We have done a longer explanatory episode on this. We did that a couple weeks ago, and I'll link to that. But just to recap really quickly, um, this is the investigation into the Vatican's investment in a real estate development in a posh neighborhood in London. Uh, The Vatican had purchased a minority stake in the development, and then uh, they ended up purchasing the entire property, which made millions of dollars in profit for the Italian middlemen who set the deal up. Uh, Now, last week, one of those Italian brokers, Gianluigi Torzi, was interrogated by the Vatican prosecutor and, according to a June 5th statement, was being held in a cell in the Vatican police barracks after he was arrested. Jerry, um, first things first, let's talk about what what was Torzi's role in this deal? To understand it briefly, let let me explain. In 2014, the Vatican invested, had money in the Secretariat of State, which had come, most of it had come from the collection of the faithful, the contribution of the faithful, and they had it. And as was normal practice, they looked around for investment. In 2013, the then chief of staff, they call him Sostituto in the Vatican, he was Archbishop Angelo Becciu from Sardinia, an, an Italian. He had been nuncio in Angola 
uh, where there's a lot of oil. And so in 2013, he asked an Italian middleman, as it were, to explore the possibility of investing in oil in Angola. And that was Minchone, right? That was the first broker. Raffaele Minchone, who is now 55 years old, who was born just outside Rome. He came back after a time and told to the archbishop, sorry, it's not a good investment. Some months later, he came back and he, he was living in London. And he said, ah, I've got a good proposition for you. I have this property near Harrods that was the warehouse of Harrods. And so he, he recommended this. So the Vatican invested $200 million in this property. But it didn't buy the property. It bought 45% of the share of the property. Minchone had a company uh, and it had the other 55%. Now, there was one problem which wasn't evident at the beginning, that this property also had a mortgage on it, which was burning up a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So by 2018, a lot of money was being burned up and the Vatican was getting a little uneasy. Pope Francis made Archbishop Becciu the Italian, he made him a cardinal on June the 29, 2018. On August the 15th, he appointed a new chief of staff, a new sostituto, the Venezuelan archbishop, Pena Parra. Now, he effectively took over from Bechu. And so you might say a second chapter of the London property scandal started. Right. And it's in this chapter that Tortsi comes in, right? Yeah. So Penapara didn't start working in the Vatican until October. And then he was presented with, with the files, which showed that the London property was really losing money big time. And so discussing with the Vatican officials who had been handling this with his predecessor, he decides the best thing is to buy out the other 55%. So they agreed on this, and then they had to find someone who would handle the buyout. So they came into contact with this uh, Gianluigi Tozzi, another Italian who was living in London and who had an office, in fact, opposite Raffaele Mincione, the first property dealer. Do we know if they knew each other? They knew each other. How well they know each other, we don't know. Got it. So they tell Tortsi to buy out the property. Um, where does this go wrong? They, they agreed a price. The they Minchoni was paid off. But, and what uh, came out was that actually the property, there wasn't one owner. There were many owners. It was like a Russian doll, you know, where you open it and there's another doll inside it and then there's another doll. And so you had many owners. So anyway, he bought out, the, he got full control of the 55%. and then he was supposed to hand this over to the Vatican. What he handed over was 30,000 shares, non-voting shares, for the property. Mm -hmm. But on the day he, hand, he made the agreement with the Vatican, he established 1,000 voting shares, which gave him still the control of the property. So the Vatican then discovered, while they had the 30,000 shares, they did not control the property. This man still controlled the property. Tertzi controlled it. Tertzi, yes. So how to get rid of this man? They had to buy him out, basically. They had to make an agreement. And so Vatican officials, uh, who obviously knew him, they began negotiating. And eventually, he came out with 15 million euro 
that's more than $15 million, to hand over the 1,000 shares that gave the Vatican total. But the Vatican judges in the meantime had been alerted because they didn't have the money to buy it out. They had to ask for the money from the Vatican Bank. And the head of the Vatican Bank smelled a rat and went to the Pope. So that's when the Pope told them to go to the judicial authorities. And then the investigation began, those offices were raided, and the employees were suspended, like we've talked about. Um, I want to get into some of the questions that have been raised about all the people involved in this. But before that, what's happening now with Tortzi? He was in that cell in the Vatican. Is he going to stay there? Well, I've talked to people in the Vatican, and uh, several have said to me, you know, this is the tip of the iceberg. Tortzi is detained in the Vatican prison. What is expected in the next month, if not sooner, is that they will be bring charges against some people. They will bring charges against some of the Vatican officials who've been involved in the deal. Uh, they'll bring charges against the obviously against Torsi and probably against the Mincioni. I think we can expect a trial probably in the Vatican. Uh, almost certainly, I would think, because Vatican there's against Torsi. There's a question of uh, fraud embezzlement and extortion. So you and you can get 12 years in prison for that. If the Vatican uh, convicts him and he loses his appeal then he will serve the, those 12 years in an Italian jail. That's the agreement between the Vatican. What will happen to Mincione? That's another question because he also didn't operate quite uh, in, in the most clear and honest way. And then there's the question of the two chiefs of staff. Right. You mentioned that that some folks in the Vatican who were involved in this would be likely questioned, but, but what about the people who were at the head of this? This is the big question that is being asked. Uh, what is going to happen with the two big chiefs of staff, the sostitutos, Archbishop, now Cardinal Becciu, who handled the whole affair from 2014 to 2018, and who actually gave the contract to Raffaele Mincione. And what happens to Archbishop Penaparra, who has gave the contract to Gianluigi Torzi? Will they be questioned by the Vatican judicial authorities or not? We don't know the answer to these questions. Certainly. Uh, what we do know is that Pope Francis has made very clear to judicial authorities, I want to get to the bottom of this. And it's clear that some decisions have been made at a high level, which were really questionable. All right. So we will keep our listeners up to date on the ongoing results of this investigation and also uh, the ongoing reforms of Vatican finance that Pope Francis has been working to make. We'll keep you updated on all of that here on Inside the Vatican. Jerry, real quick before we go, um, there's one last thing that we've been wanting to talk about, which is uh, World Environment Day. Uh, Pope Francis has been uh, celebrating this. Could you give us an update on what's going on? Well, the World Environment Day was set up by the United Nations in 1972 after a big conference on the environment. The first World Environment Day organized by the United Nations was in 1974. And ever since, there has been World Environment Day. Pope Francis, for this year's World Environment Day, the first to be done in a virtual way, was in Colombia. And he wrote a letter to the president of Colombia saying that, you know, we can't be healthy in a world that's sick. We need to give attention to the environment. And especially this year, they were speaking on the biodiversity 
which he spoke about a lot in his encyclical Laudato Si. And Pope Francis has said, I hope that in this year, he invited everybody in this year to study the themes of Laudato Si. In other words, study the issues that are of such vital importance to the well-being of the planet, but also to the, well, the health of people. And so he's encouraging people. And I think we're going to see throughout this year efforts throughout the Catholic Church, both here at the center in Rome, but also in, in dioceses and churches around the world and national conferences, focusing on this whole question of integral ecology, an ecology, an environment that cares for the planet and ensures the health of people. Um, we will have a bonus episode of Inside the Vatican this week, where I'll be interviewing two Princeton University sociologists who are studying the impact of Laudato Si. So stay tuned for that. That'll be coming out later this week. Jerry, thanks for taking the time to talk through these stories with me this week. Um, I appreciate you being able to explain some of these particularly complicated things, especially with the, the finances. Thank you, Colleen. And I hope we have peace in the United States and that the virus begins to gradually recede. Thanks so much, Jerry. See you next time. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This week's episode was produced by Tucker Redding. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. Inside the Vatican is mixed by Noah Levinson. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org or follow us on Twitter at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I. You can also email us your questions at insidethevatican at americamedia.org. For America Media with Jared O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next time. 